Hello, and welcome to another episode of BarkBox. I'm your host, Jason. In this episode, I talk to Umar Rashid. Umar, aka Fohawk in Two Feathers, is a visual artist that reimagines 18th century colonial history through a narrative of painting and sculpture of the fictitious superpowers Fringland and Frisconia. We talk about his work and his start into the visual arts. So, how did you get your start in the visual arts? You know, I studied uh, film in college, and uh, I studied film, and I didn't really like you know, I mean, I was like one of those college kids, you know, I was more interested in like the night, the social life and, and the partying. So I didn't really do well in the film classes because it required a lot of technical discipline and stuff like that. And so I just didn't, didn't really, it didn't even work well for me. And then, you know, it required so much, you know, because it was at that time we were shooting like Super 8 or like, you know, High 16, yeah, Super 16. And um, I moved from film to photography because, you know, that was more cooler, you know, more about getting the shots. And I guess like in film, I really just wanted to be a screenwriter or a cinematographer at the time. So I was always influenced by that. And plus my father is a painter and my mother, you know, has some artistic talent. So, you know, but my father does theater, so playwright oh wow so you know it was always in my family you know i knew i was going to do something artistic and i just wanted to you know evolve the medium from theater to film and so that's why that was the initial impetus for getting into film uh plans within plans you know it's like things that this like jacob begut he saw he saw begut ruddy brown hair you know like whatever yeah <laughs> so that's where it started and then finally condensed it i just took a creative writing class I was uh, working on a creative writing minor and a uh, photography major. And I did that for a while. You know, I was a six-year undergrad. <laughs> uh, and then around, but towards the end, like, I, I met my wife in 1997. And when I met my wife around that time, I also started hanging out with a different group of people. So I wasn't really focused on, the, like, hip-hop, you know, rap life that I was living because, you know, I was a, always an MC. I was always rapping. Yeah always a musician so when i met my wife i started hanging out with you know more of the arty kids and i was like man this is really cool this is even cooler than photography because <laughs> these guys are super free like you know you don't have to be in the dark room inhaling a bunch of whack-ass chemicals all the time yeah <laughs> so like i was like wow so then i started trying my hand at painting but i'm gonna get this degree in photography and i did went back to chicago southern illinois university which is about five hours south of chicago mm. at the southern tip of illinois yeah and so I came back to Chicago to work for a couple of months, and my wife was away. Uh, wasn't my wife at the time, but uh, we decided to move to Los Angeles. Then, and so in 2000, when I moved to Los Angeles, I realized I couldn't get a job with my degree. I couldn't get a job, you yeah. know? And so I went from design painting and trying to work as a design painter, ended up working at an art gallery. Hmm. framing gallery yeah so that kind of rekindled my love for you know hanging out with my friends in college and i was like oh man you know maybe i'll try my hand at this art shit but it's not paying so i worked there and then i quit that job after a while you know i'd already caught the bug so then i got a new job i was selling hookahs <laughs> uh downtown downtown la yeah and then i started like doing these doodles on um, invoice paper and using whiteout and highlighters and pens. And I started getting into what became the Fringless Empire was a little series 
an invoice paper called The Tales of Heroism. Hmm. And it was jokey, like tongue-in-cheek, kind of like comic strip, Calvin and Hobbes of colonialism. Uh, <laughs> so I started that. And then, you know, at that time in L.A., the lowbrow scene was hot from San Francisco and the way it diffused down here yeah. was it was just like a bunch of people doing like kind of cute stuff, like animated, more comically, comic-y stuff, a lot of writers. But there was also a lot of money around because L.A. is all the actors and the production people. Yep. So I did a series, Tales of Heroism, and I took them to this gallery and they sold them all. Hmm. They saw, I made like 20 and they sold them all. And they were like 50 bucks a piece. I was like, wow, I can get paid for this? So this is like in 2003. And so they sold them all. And then after that, I was like, I'm going to just, you know, keep doing this. And so I started working on more and more and more stuff like that. It got bigger and bigger and bigger. And in 2006, I had my first major exhibition with the former employees of that particular gallery that I, that was doing so well with my work. Hmm. And then I just started painting full time. Yeah, so I was, I mean, I was always painting, but like full time, you know, it was like 2005, 2006 is when it all started. So that's how I got started. And then that was the first show that I did about the Fringe Empire uh, was in 2006. So once that was uh, initiated, I realized like, wow, this is, this is a real thing. I really knew. Yeah. And then, um, uh, but what happened was I had actually started the story at the, at the end. So using my skills from creative writing, I wrote the story, The Rise and Fall of the Fringlish Empire, kind of details the beginning through the end. And there was always what really gave the impetus for the narrative itself was the liberation, uh, the Haitian Revolution. Because, you know, I was looking at colonialism. This is going to answer, uh, I think, question number three. Uh, the reason why I chose this particular time is because it was the most, like, I feel that the, you know, the age of sale, like the age of exploration, the age of sale, the colonial period was the one time in uh, modernity where human beings actually had an escape. Like we had a way, you know, you could pretty much do anything you wanted to. There was no system of mass surveillance. There was no system of uh, mechanized warfare had not been issued person. A good 10 people with, you know, strong bows and arrows could take out 20 people with flintlock muskets. So the, the playing field was a little more even then. So it seemed the best way to insert a narrative where you could change things. Hmm. You know, unlike now, because you can't uncreate the atomic bomb. You know, as no. much as we want to, we can't uncreate nuclear energy. You know, we right. can't uncreate the Gatlin gun or AR-15s. We cannot uncreate Drones. them. They exist. Yeah. But at that time, like I said, like the playing field was a little, little more level, you know, and, and it wasn't so much about, I mean, it was about race, but it was also more about culture and very like tribal unit. The, the basic unit, uh, military was very tribal at that time. And so uh, warfare, I should say, uh, warfare was very uh, tribal uh, enterprise. And so I chose that period because of the malleability of the time. And then on the on another note, you have like this thing that, you know, you have transatlantic slave trade. Right. And then you have the beginnings of what we have now, corporations. So it's the beginning of the corporate states, Dutch East India Company, British East India Company, you know, with things yep. that had never truly existed before. I mean, there have always been markets uh, like the Romans used to Spain as like pretty much a red basket, much like the Russians used in Ukraine yeah. in Memorial. But this is the first time that it had taken on an international character. So that was another unique 
thing about the time, but still like what held that together, what held that enterprise together was kind of like what's keeping people buying a bunch of toilet paper was fear, <laughs> you fear, know? Right. You know, like, oh man, the gunboats, you know, they're going to come because like, you look at the fall of Tenochtitlan, like uh, 300 Spanish soldiers conquered an entire empire and not because they were some super badasses in their, you know, their iron helmets and suits. It was just because the uh, Aztecs, you know, they were very cruel. They just united. You know, Europe uh, developed that divide and conquer thing right. uh, more so than anybody else did, you know, because they were like, hey, well, we know we're at a disadvantage because we're like thousands of miles from home. So that Europe kind of perfected this uh, tactic mm. of divide and rule. Right. Even though you're like millions of miles away from home, and at any time, these people can, you know, rise against you. So also at that time, the exportation of religion. Uh, you know, on the power of the Catholic Church and even, you know, to a lesser extent, the Protestants and the Calvinists and all these people, you know, people right. who were, you know, recently evangelized in Europe and now they come, you know, oh, we got to civilize these people. So it's like so much happening, so much synchronization. You know, you get voodoo from the, you know, uh, uh, West African, the farm religion and yep. mix it with Catholicism. You get Candomblé and Santeria out of the same thing and Wenti and Suriname. So it's incredible upheavals in uh, human ingenuity, uh, but also the main apparatus was the fear apparatus and, and getting people to conform, uh, which was also very weird. Certain individual policies already been accustomed to doing that, so it was just like another system, but... It was far more insidious because the people that were doing the controlling weren't the people that, you know, were doing it before. They, were, they came from oceans away. Right, yeah. You yeah. know, to do this. So, they, you know, so that intrigued me. I was like, so how do we get here? Secondly, in, you know, growing up and being a, you know, huge mythology fan and a huge history fan, for the life of me, I couldn't understand why there was, I never saw myself in any of these history books. Uh, you know, and it was always like, you know, oh, you know, this white guy, you know, he's going to come and save us all and da 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 You know, and I was just like, oh, man, it's horrible. I mean, it just yeah. does nothing for your self-esteem. Right. And so then when I discovered the Gutenberg Project, I saw these uh, these books that just, you know, have been written and just never proliferated. Right. Because of whatever agenda, you know, it makes sense. I mean, if you have an agenda, if you want to, again, you don't want a smart and educated populace. You want people to be dumbed down on. Well, it's true. So, That's true. I was like, damn. And I had known about the Haitian Revolution and, you know, the accomplishments of black people and other people of color throughout the years, but there was not a whole lot of information on it. So then I just started studying more and more, and which also answers another question because I do like at least about six months of research and six months of execution. Ah, wow. So now, you know, sort of expanded. Like, so when I learned about, like, you know, Haitian Revolution in order to create my narrative, right? I had to go back and relearn a lot of uh, European history, a lot of world history. And so John Teagan wrote a book called The History of Warfare that I used a lot as reference to how the colonial machine became so effective throughout the universe. And it's actually attached to the history of warfare itself and the modernization of warfare and the mechanization of the uh, weapons used in right. warfare. Hmm. And not to mention different forms of sailing vessels, all the, the quinine that was uh, taken from Peru by the Dutch and planted in Indonesia and sold to all European nations at a cost by the Dutch East India Company that allowed them to inhabit these tropical regions without 
succumbing to uh, yellow fever and all these other diseases. So, right. you know, so you learn like warfare, epidemiology, commerce. And so I just learned all this stuff just by reading these books. And so once I felt that I absorbed enough, I started to make my narrative. So that became the empire of Fringland. Wow. <laughs> Are you still working on that narrative today or have you moved on to a different? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm, I'm so slow. I've only, in about 14 years, 15 years, I've only gotten through uh, since I decided to go back to the, I went, I didn't even go back to the beginning, I went to the middle. So I started around 1740 and now I'm in like the 1790s. So like I still haven't even scratched the surface in terms of the depth of the narrative because now it's doing more like uh, site-specific work or I've been doing that for a while. But, you know, there's still just so much to do and so much that I haven't done. But, you know, I'm just working on it day by day. So, yeah. I'll die doing this work. <laughs> I won't even, you know, I'll have to, you know, explain it to my children so they can continue it. <laughs> because it's crazy. I mean, it's so, it's gotten so extensive now. The narrative is just, it just grows and grows and grows and grows each, each past year. So that's where I am now is I'm just working a site specifically. Uh, I just finished a narrative about the Western uh, United States. But since there is no United States in, in my world, it's not the United States. <laughs> yeah. So when, when someone views your work with this narrative that has been ongoing and, and other narratives that you have, should people view the work as uh, truth or as an asterisk about truth? Uh, as an asterisk about truth. Because truth, you know, then we get to like philosophical questions, which I started to, you know, also I studied a lot of philosophy and what kept coming up, especially in, in when talking speaking about colonialism, was Hegel yeah. and Hegelian dialectic. Right. Uh, you're right. Hegel would be a good example. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I started to incorporate more philosophical things. So it's not abject truth. I mean, it's taken directly from history books, right. but it is modified in a way to allow for the over-encompassing of the current, the modern day, the past, and... Uh, now the cosmological future mm. of all of these things together. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's gotten super crazy now. <laughs> I hope it stays super crazy. Yeah, oh, of course. It will. It will. <laughs> I, I have another philosophical question for you then. If anything could be called art, quote-unquote, what would be the point or the value of fulfilling that label? I don't know. I just think, like, I mean, the way things function, I mean, uh, you know, like, I, I don't really get into to the whole labeling, yeah. you know, yeah. so much. I mean, I mean, I also know, like, I'm not so naive to think that I don't make luxury items for the rich. But, uh, no, I mean, I just think, like, uh, it's art because we say it is, <laughs> you know? Right. So, yeah, that, that doesn't really bother me. Or maybe am I missing a question? No, no, it's, it's a total philosophical opinion question. Basically, what I'm asking is, if something could be called art, what would be the point or the value of it? And you pretty much answered that. So yeah, I don't, I don't think it matters at all. Well, yeah, and that's that's valid because some people do think it very important and valid to label something and call something art. You know, especially people who will like, like they say, well, my art wouldn't work unless it's in a in a predefined room like a gallery or uh, outside next to a particular kind of tree. So for some no. people, right? For some people, it's yeah. A, for them, it's important to be labeled like that. 
I'm a little more open-minded. To me, it's more situational. To me, it's one of those things where it's the viewer gets to decide if it's a piece of art or not. So, like I said, that's just yeah. my opinion on that. I, you know, I don't have a PhD in writing and about that. I probably should get one, but I doubt I will. <laughs> I don't have a PhD. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, this is one of my other favorite questions to ask, and this is a, not a trick question at all. This is, uh, what advice would you give your past self or to others? Oh, shit, Jay. <laughs> well, uh, I would tell my past self uh, to charge more money. No, I'm just joking. Uh, <laughs> I, um, you know, um, man, you know, not get too involved in the art market. Mm. You know, just make your art and be as free and clear about it. I mean, freer than I have been earlier on, so that you don't get, you don't get gassed by the market. Yeah, you yeah. don't, you don't let that affect what you produce. You know, you just make stuff. And I kind of, in a way, I mean, I, the reason why it's taken me 15 years is I kind of actually followed that advice. Hmm. You know, I don't care about. I mean, I care about the market now because I have two children and I have, yeah. you know, bills and things like that. But you know, initially, I think I've always kind of been true to myself. You know, I've never done anything that I felt like negative about it or I felt like I was being untruthful to myself about it. Like I, everything that I've done has been kind of, it's all been planned. Hmm. It's all been very much planned from the beginning because I know that I had an advantage over say an abstract painter or another painter who paints portraits of the same thing because I have an entire world to choose from instead of one thing so i would never become a one-trick tony right yeah you know so i guess my greatest advice would be to thine own self be true and don't worry about the the market don't worry about i mean wh- i mean figure out ways to make money i mean you you, you, you gotta sell well, like yeah. paintings yeah. you know for uh a hundred dollars you gotta sell that paint for a hundred dollars and do whatever it takes to make sure that you your artwork pays for itself. Mm. I'm going to write that piece of information down. Thank you. You know, make sure that what whatever you do pays for itself. Because at the end of the day, you don't want to be beholden to anyone for your ideas. Because once an idea, you become beholden to an institution or a gallery or a museum or something for your own ideas. Yeah. Then that's when you start to circumvent your initial impetus for doing whatever the fuck it is that you do. <laughs> Right. Wow. You're correct, sir. Like I said, I had to write that down. So I might have to get that tattooed or make it into a poster. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, but it's it's just simple truths. Like, I mean, it's very simple, but it's just hard to pull off because we live in, you know, the pluralistic society where up is down, white is black. So everything is crazy. But then the answer to it is very simple. And it's just the choices that, that you make. And but you know but you can still be angered by the choices you make even though know how slammed they are. Sometimes I get like angry and jealous. I was like, how is this artist like this motherfucker just got out of art school? You know he went to Yale and he paints like cubes and now this guy's like showing in, you know the the new museum or you know like something like that. Right. It's been written up in New York Times and I think this is you know just the most vapid fucking trash ever. <sighs> you know but then you know but that is like that person's journey. That's true. That's true. So jealousy can be a motivator. Anger can be a motivator. But the best motivator is you and just doing your work and, you know, kind of putting on those horse blinders and running your race. Because if you start to look around you and you start to see the deception and all the other bullshit that's happening and occurring within your universe, physical sphere, then you'll drive yourself mad. 
Oh, insane mad. Yeah. 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 Insane. You, you, it's a maddening thing to try to live, to live. You know, and it's all these maxims and quotes like keeping up with the Joneses and blah, 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 blah. You know, all yeah. that shit was said for a reason. And it's still, you know, relevant because this has been a thing that humans have known since time immemorial, I believe. That is true. So just run your own race and then you when it's your time, it's your time. But, you know, it's not like you can think about it like it's some cathartic religious experience. I mean, you got to actually, you know, hard work still does factor in. Like, you know, I, I taught myself how to draw. I taught myself how to paint. Like, I didn't learn that in school. Like, I, I, I was self-taught. True, but you did also uh, got training on narrative. And there are some people out there who do great drawing and painting but lack narrative. Right, right. So, you know, another thing that I did is I created the images so they can be standalone because I don't feel like I answered this question properly. <laughs> I created the images to stand alone. So, like, you know, in reference to the Colonial Basketball Series, yeah. is, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in sports at all hmm. at, any, at any level. Not that it's not true. I played football in, in, <laughs> in high school. And, I do, you know, every once in a while, you know, you give me a basketball, I can't really do any magic with it, but, yeah. you know, I'll play, I'll try to shoot it. Yeah. Basketball is an interesting thing because I know that people really, like, a lot of people around me really like it. Like, my brother loves basketball. Yeah. And, you know, all my friends. And it just seemed like it was just like... I just wanted to take what I was doing because at first I felt like I was like kind of talking over everybody's head. Yeah. You know, with a Fregalian dialectic and Spinoza, subspecies, and Trinitatis, you know, all these things. And I was like, well, what will happen if I just condense that into, so that became a, uh, it was an experiment to myself, which became a, quite a successful experiment, is taking something that I know and almost nothing about and don't care about yeah. And putting that into my colonial breadbasket and see what comes out. So for the past, like, five years, when I kind of had a fallout with the gallery system and all these things, mm-hmm. I started doing stuff about cosmology, you know, more about things that came out of the narrative that I wanted to explore more about syncretism, religion, things like that. So I started that, and then basketball series is one of those. Now the next series is going to be a series about cricket and then there's one about tennis and one about polo Uh-oh. you know and stuff like that so i'm just doing things that i you know i'm just learning i just try to evolve and, and learn as much as i can and, and just and fit it within the narrative story the narrative the world is already created and i'm just playing god yeah well that it's and you're gonna have endless possibilities especially if you're gonna go into different sports oh yeah yeah like endless possibilities and you know polo is interesting because that comes from the the step people hmm. Uh, the people of the steppe, the uh, Eurasian plateau, you know, which is interesting. But then similar games are played in the United States, well, but without horses, you know, like lacrosse and yeah, where Ohio lies from. Yeah. It's all this crazy, and the ball court game, Olmec culture, and the Mayans, and subsequently the Aztecs, Toltecs, and, you know. So there's just so much. I mean, it's just like, you know, you just open the book and you let your, you know, open your mind and you just see there's just so much. 
so much to do and uh, to explore and do. It is just a fantastic, fantastic thing. That is true. I, I unfortunately read too many philosophy books. Maybe I should be actually starting to read history books instead. Well, so. I mean, the philosophy is interesting because philosophy is just like, okay, so say you're doing like E. Daimon or, you know, Socrates, Aristotle, you need to go with your good, good old Greek philosophers. Yeah, you start with, yeah, you start with this, the classics, yeah. And then you read the pseudo-religious text of Egypt or Babylon or Sumer or, you know, these, these places. Right. And find that a lot of philosophy is pretty much just like a codified common sense. Mm, yeah, I would have to you agree know? with that. And yeah. then you get to like Thomas Paine and to the colonial age. And uh, actually, I just did, um, you know, like uh, Grotius Natural Law for mm. the show I just did in the, um, in the Netherlands. You know, oh, Grotius right. talking about natural law, but yeah. that natural law only applies to white people. You know, it didn't apply to the people who they were fleecing, but it applied to people who were doing the fleecing. So, you know, all these concepts are well and good, but, you know, until you put it in the lens of, you know, practical application, common sense, you know, it's just like some hoity-toity thing that good um, to talk about at cocktail parties and you put on your smoking jacket. But, <laughs> you know, you have to find real-world applications for the philosophy, and then you just put it into it. But you write also, and you... And everybody has a personal philosophy, but then we all, I think, adhere to the same things. But Spinoza blew my mind. And maybe that's why I'm rallying so hard against this coronavirus. <laughs> because I'm just, you know, what Spinoza said, there is no no real good or evil because you won't know it because it's viewed through the lens of the eternal. And we are not eternal beings. We are finite beings. Yeah, yeah. So kind of like, like, kind of like, hey, if you think you're doing the right thing, then so be it. That's but cool. you'll never really know because you won't live long enough to find out how it, you know, how it all turns out. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not even really thinking about that or worried about that, how if wanting to know how it all turns out. I'm just worried about living right here, right now, you know, and talking to you. So because that, yeah. that's, that's important to me. Yeah, because what I'm saying is that but in terms of like the way we view information, like, you know, when you when you read a particular philosopher. Yeah. It's like, you know, when I first read Hegel, like, I was like, damn, you know, I got really depressed. Oh, well, yeah, <laughs> I, I can I can see I that. Like, yeah. You know, like, man, this is, this is tried and true. And yeah. I was like, oh, God, you can just see it. Like, once you know it, you see it everywhere. You see the patterns of it everywhere. Now, good old Erasmus, <laughs> bless his heart, you know, Erasmus is like, you know, he didn't, you know, he was like, hey, man, you know, be cool, man. Yeah, be cool, be man. Be cool, love <laughs> God, man, give, give up to God. Humanism, yeah, we're going to do this, you know. I'm like, okay, Erasmus, yeah, all right. Cool. Uh, all right, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but then, you know, then you get, like, Nietzsche, but I, you know, I, I didn't really get into, like, post-war. Even, like, I don't even go into the Victorian age in the story. I ended, like, right at the beginning mm -hmm. of the, well, kind of like the beginning of the Victorian age. So I don't really get into the Victorian age because that's when I tried to end the story. Because basically it begins in 1648 and then it goes until 1880. And those aren't uh, random dates. 1648 was the... Uh, uh, 1658, I'm sorry, with the death of Oliver Cromwell. Yeah. Uh, so that left me a space to create the unification of France and England because it actually was going to happen until they got old George I, the Hanoverian king, to come over. Right. But 
when the Stuarts when the Stuarts took the monarchy, they were Catholic, and the Stuart monarchy, they were just kind of like, you know, they were kind of friends of France, and they hated Cromwell. So that was the time, you know, and Louis the Fourteenth was, you know, the Sun King was doing his thing. So I took that time, my start, my story, my narrative, yeah, because that was the time where I thought that it was the most malleable place in time to uh, do something new. And I ended it in 1880 because that's when the Portuguese, in all their infinite wisdom, finally abolished slavery. (laughs) (laughs) Like 100 years, almost 70 years after Britain, 20 years after the United States. Right. you know, and, you know, so it was just like, it just it was made a nice ending point. So that was that. Um, right now, I'm just trying to figure some things out. Uh, what I'm doing uh, now, doing Made in L.A., which is a pretty big show. I was very happy to be included in that. That's happening in Los Angeles in June. Hopefully all the bullshit will be uh, be done. You know, all this nonsense will be done by then. I'm, I'm hoping uh, so. But still, you know, I still got to make the work. So I'm just going to work on that. And I'm kind of doing um, uh, the show based in Los Angeles. I'm doing a little narrative, continuing a narrative that I had done about Los Angeles and which uh, talks about the mission system and the Christianization of the native populace of Southern California. Oh, okay. Uh, so I'm talking about that. But then also, like, the Afro-Mexican root of the city of Los Angeles in itself, and just, you know, uh, a lot of Af- Afro-Mexicans uh, lived in California uh, because there was some backwater province of so, uh, first New Spain, and then uh, and when Mexico became a state, uh, then of Mexico in and of itself. And yeah. then, you know, a lot of people came here to, like, kind of get away. And then gold was found, you know, white people took it over, killed everybody. <laughs> uh, well, you know, white, uh, like, you know, Americans. Right, 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 over. right. So, you know, that's the history of that. I mean, nobody really wanted to be here. It was kind of like some backwater place, you know. I did the show at the University of Arizona where, you know, I talked about the historical origins. The same thing, like the Christianization of the Native American populace down there. Right. And influx of slave labor at the then Spanish Empire in that area. And a lot of that was based around uh, cattle ranching and small-scale, small-scale mining. Hmm. Well, I have definitely learned something today. I did not realize that was a there was a whole culture that was around uh, the LA area uh, back in the in the early 19th century. Wow, I just I'm gonna have to look that up now. Yeah, it's it's so much. I mean, it's really so much. Like, there's all these little narratives. But, you know, unless you're really interested in it, you'll never, like, really piece it, uh, you'll never really piece it together. But, yeah, so, yeah, it's coming a little tiny little narrative, but I'm looking at that because now I know what to look for. Yeah, and I'm sure you're starting to see it everywhere now that you're looking for it. Yeah, so you see it, yeah, you, and you just see it, but just like your, your philosophy, you can spot it anytime and, you know, uh, bear down on it. I want to thank Umar for taking the time to do the interview. If you want to learn more about Umar, you can go to his Instagram at frohawk2feathers or newimageartgallery.com. To hear past episodes of Artbox, you can visit the website at artboxdnv.com. Until next time, thank you for listening.